Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Aideen Sachs and Kate Wilkinson. Aideen is the Senior Advisor to Open Impact, but also a uh, Program Director of the Irvine New Leadership Network. Kate Wilkinson is a Strategy and Philanthropy Engagement Manager at Open Impact. Aideen, Kate, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. I asked you both here to talk about a new report you've done. We've, we've had Open Impact on the podcast before about a previous work. It's really fascinating. But before we do that, Aideen, can you just tell me a little bit more about your work, the types of things you do when you're not participating in creating these types of reports? Awesome. Um, so my happy place is working with leaders um, and helping them kind of get to greater impact. So I'm not the person that you call when you want to figure out how to better manage your staff or, you know, figure out how to create a fundraising strategy. I'm the person that you call when you really want to learn how to collaborate uh, in the direction of greater impact. So that's pretty much what I love to do. I love to work with funders. I love to work with executive directors. I love to work with social actors that actually don't have any titles associated with their work. Um, and that comes really out of my own experience. I was a executive director, a founding director of a nonprofit. I was in philanthropy for a long time, and I've been independent for about four years. Great, thanks, Adina and Kate. Thanks. I am an engagement manager at Open Impact, which is a social advisory firm. We work with nonprofits and philanthropy. We do a lot of strategy engagements, helping leaders think through sort of their organizations and their aspirations and, and the sort of strategic pathways to getting there. And have done great work before. I've mentioned at the uh, start of this show that we um, have had an interview about a previous open impact report, The Giving Code. I'm going to link that in the show notes for people that haven't heard that one yet to definitely go back and check that out. Uh, but The New Normal is uh, um, newer work that you've both been working on and released with another partner. Uh, who's your other co-author on that? I'm sorry, I've forgotten the person's name. That's right. Heather McLeod Grant. Heather she was, led the work on the new normal, but also on the giving code and the giving journey reports that we've done. So she's sort of our lead writer and thought leader. Um, and Aideen and I were lucky to be involved with her as well on this one. Great. So collaboratively put together some really interesting stuff in this report. And I'd like to kind of um, kick it off about the idea of why this particular report, why this work right now? I mean, it, it, you've spelled it out beautifully in the report in the introduction, but for folks that haven't seen it yet, um, what prompted the creation of this work? I, I mean, I guess I'll answer that question in two ways. I mean, I think that um, you have to be living in a very special place to not be impacted by, uh, you know, the pre-election, election, post-election post -election impacts on what's happening in our, in our country right now. Um, no matter where you sit with uh, your feelings about um, whether it's good or bad or whatever, but it is, it is a different moment. Um, so I think, you know, just the results of sitting in that moment and then practically, so I have spent the last year with the amazing team at the uh, Packard Foundation that is focused on organizational effectiveness and the new normal project really grew out of my work there. Uh, we were doing a lot of talking to Packard grantees about what has changed for them and what is what are what are their needs their capacity needs specifically but that gets super blurry quickly and i'm sure we'll get into that um and you know the team at the packard foundation and you know and me i mean we were just very very curious about how how common this experience that folks were having 
at um, nonprofit organizations, at foundations was uh, in the wake of the 2016 election. So that's really, that was really the impetus for the report. And Kate, uh, how did you choose to decide, yes, we, we at Open Impact definitely want to be part of that? How did that part happen for you? Yeah, we're really excited about the times when the work that we're doing with leaders like the Packard Foundation um, and like Aideen, when that work sort of bridges to impact for the sector and where we start to see insights that we think are really important to be sharing out with the larger field, um, that's sort of our sweet spot. And, and that's when we'll start to, to think about writing a longer report. Um, Aideen was really um, driving this strategy project with Packard, but the findings that she was, she was um, uh, gleaning from it were, were really huge for the field in general, we thought. And so we thought it was an important moment. And we went back to the Packard Foundation and said, we think we can share this. What do you think? And, and of course, as usual, the Packard Foundation being sort of such a thought leader for both philanthropy and nonprofits, they said, yeah, let's do it. And, and here it is. The um, David and Lucille Belt or Packard, pardon me, uh, foundation is not something that I have as much familiarity with in the part of the country I work with. But mm -hmm. I saw in your report that um, sort of an immediate response that they had in a post 2016 world was to um, make a, a more rapid infusion of resources available than perhaps they would normally do <laughs> an additional $22 million or some yeah. large number yeah. like that. Um, so that was pre-deciding to do this report. They had already thought that their responsive piece to the new normal they were running into was they needed to get some more resources on the table and then talk about how others responded. Is that the sequence of events? Yeah, and I, you know, I would put even a, like a finer grain on what they decided to do. So they deployed, I can't remember if it was 15 or $20 million into their core program areas, like pretty much, you know, months um, after the election and after they'd had some time to talk to the grantees that they, uh, you know, kind of walk the path with, um, especially around reproductive rights and the environment. And that, that money continues to flow into those program areas. The other thing that they did, which impacted my work um, and, and the new normal work that we've done with Open Impact is that they, they took a chunk of that to really look at how capacity needs are changing in this moment in time. Um, and that, you know, deployment of that amount of money and it just, just took some time because obviously it wasn't clear right at the get-go how the capacity needs of organizations and nonprofit leaders and networks was going to change in this current environment. Was it going to be, you know, a momentary crisis or was it going to be more prolonged? Um, and so we took, you know, they took maybe a year or 18 months to kind of figure it out and that money is still being deployed and hopefully, hopefully will be renewed for the field. Well, I think, Kate, as we're looking at um, the, the totality of the report, as, as the speed of what has become the new normal has become the new normal, it is really challenging to talk about um, a, a foundation deployment timeline that uh, Aideen just described to us as something that, um, for people that may be outside of philanthropy traditionally, may not think of as all that fast. But given normal grant cycles, it certainly is a very quick way to move resources but the response in the field to um, the the 2016 elections, the changes in policy, um, you know, on on the next in nonprofits uh, website, we have a, uh, um, a blog post titled "Dissident" that it was published immediately after the 2016 election, saying we are now in opposition to many policies of a government that we used to be allied with, uh, and um, we have to think of ourselves very differently in that world. So, as you think of 
package response and what you've had to learn in this, that, that shift of how do we work with governmental resources, let alone philanthropy and private sector stuff, um, is a pretty big you know, new normal to come to terms with. That's right. You know, and I think um, what we really found in the new normal is that there's not just, you know, we spoke with 21 leaders from across a variety of sectors. And then I would say there's not sort of one sector that has been exempt from, from this huge shift, um, whether that's environmental, whether that's reproductive rights, even the arts, um, all nonprofits are sort of in this space of a wait and see and yet also needing to react really quickly. And I think the funders have had that same reaction. Um, we're not sure how things are gonna land. We're not sure what's going to be happening, especially with government resources. And yet at the same time, we're needing to sort of respond really quickly to what's happening in the sector and what's happening to, to those that we're serving. Um, and so I think that's a tension we call out in, in the new normal um, and, and that potentially could take even another year or two to really sort of clarify. Well, and, uh, oh, Please, just, I didn't finish. Please. Yeah, yeah. I just want to add to what Kate's saying because I think it's important for the readers to, uh, for your listeners to understand is that, you know, we were ready, you know, even before the election, we were ready in a, in a moment of pretty uh, massive shifts in terms of how social change happens, how it happens effectively, what role organizations play, what role movements play, what role new, uh, networks play in how you actually get the job done. And I think that what uh, the new normal tries to really uh, make clear is just how much more intense that change, uh, how much more visible the, that change became, how much more intense it became for nonprofit leaders and for funders to really uh, be aware of all the forces at play. And um, also just, just to understand their role in the systems as they you know, systems are dynamic. Sometimes they change faster than other times. And, and this is a moment of speeding up, but it is not, you know, a cataclysmic cliff that happened because of the election. A lot of these changes were in the works already. Um, so in some ways we were ahead of the game and in a lot of other ways we were not. Well, that actually leads to another question I wanted to ask you both about the difference between the speed of um, response within the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector, uh, but the ability of a changed government to actually enact some of the things uh, that um, are proposed. So there's an immediate feeling of uh, threat that comes out when um, a, a president tweets a horrific thing and most of us respond with, oh my gosh, this horrific thing is happening versus, well, the president actually has to, you know, go through a process to enact anything and often needs the Congress in order to do some of these things. So the implementation on the government side of this new equation has been slowed pretty dramatically compared to the speed of other things that are happening, at least the, the perceived threat of them. Um, that creates an imbalance in this whole conversation of new normal when the, the, the speed at which uh, our, our traditional allies in the government sector, now sometimes in opposition to us, are able to act actually make a change versus how right. quickly we have to respond to it. Right. And I think it's important to really make clear, like, so the, the primary focus of the new normal report and the leaders that we talked to were the, were almost like first wave responders, right? Yes. It's the folks who were really impacted in a much more immediate way because of the shifts in shifts to immigration, both talk and action and same with reproductive rights. 
talk and action. Mm -hmm. um, and so we really want to be clear with your listeners as they're reading the new normal report that even though we are aware that there's kind of two waves, there's the first wave of people who are the most impacted by the, the issues that are most impacted. And then it feels like we're all waiting for this second wave, which is what Steve, you're starting to talk about, which is like the long tail of shifts in government funding to core social service agencies who are doing bread and butter work. And I don't think we've even started to see the impacts of, you know, the tax reform and its impact on philanthropy and its impact on social service agencies who depend on government contracts and how locally entrenched that change is going to happen. Um, and it's a little bit of a wait and see. And, you know, my physical thing is like, you know, ah, you know, the home alone kid <laughs> uh, of like, oh, my. <laughs> and so, you know, so the new normal really tried to capture a snapshot of what nonprofit leaders and social actors are facing in this moment where it's the, the most obvious is being, um, you know, brought to the core. But we're aware that there's going to be a second generation um, impact and a need to really look at what needs to happen and funders are going to be very, very essential to that conversation. Kate, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think I, the only thing I'd add is, you know, something that we heard from the, the folks we interviewed as well, which is the only certainty feels like uncertainty in this <laughs> moment, right? And, and I think we're all sort of managing around that. And I think our, our report is really a call to the funder community as well to walk with nonprofits and, and movements and networks in this moment of uncertainty and how can they best support them to manage that uncertainty in the most sort of strategic and impact-centered way they can. Well, that's a, a great transition to another really important point that you're making in this report about um, capacity building and what's defined here as external capacity building and network building different from necessarily the traditional way that we've thought of capacity building in the nonprofit sector. So I just threw out a tremendous amount of buzzwords and I'm wondering, um, Kate, could you just kind of start walking through how you talk about um, those concepts of the simultaneous need for external capacity and network rate response versus the still real need of internal capacity building within many charities. Yeah, and I think I'm going to split that into two pieces, and I'm going to take on the internal okay. um, piece, and I'll let Aideen, who is really a worldwide expert on the network capacity piece, do that one. Um, but I think the, the report really calls out something that we as a sector know and are continuing to um, refine, which is that the, the five-year strategic plan is dead, right? And, and I say that as a strategic planning consultant. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, it's about adaptive strategy and planning. It's about really being able to, to plan for a variety of scenarios and building the sort of strong teams, the strong organizations, the strong financial models that are going to help you adapt and shift as we continue to, to see this new normal of uncertainty play out. Um, how are you building constituencies for your work? How are you handling sort of shifts in your revenue from private donations and government? How are you starting to diversify your teams and strengthen them? Give, you know, give yourself some bench strength. Think about how you're, you're focusing on your staff and their wellness. And those are sort of really deep pieces of work that, that take a lot of, of time and energy and resources. But, but to sort of say, here we go, here's this five-year plan that we're going to sort of build around and build our capacity around, that's, that's no longer sort of the way things work. 
So and Adina, I'll let you do the, the network one. Um, well, I, I mean, I just, I want to underscore, I think what uh, Kate really articulated for people who are sitting at nonprofits is, is super important, right? So uh, being adaptive and also just not shying away from the intersections between your core business, your core issue that you're addressing and its connection uh, with so much that's happening in the world. You know, for instance, the, one of the examples that we give in the report that feels really real to me sitting in California with all the fires happening all around us is, you know, a year ago when there were fires in Napa and Sonoma, um, one of the things that we heard from the nonprofits that, uh, that were trying to service fire victims is how hard it was to come to the aid of immigrants mm -hmm. and how fearful they were to tap into the services that were made, being made available to families in Sonoma and Napa because they didn't want to be visible. And so um, I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting about the blurring between external capacity and internal capacity is that organizations who have that core business are really being forced, most of them are not being forced, but most of them are, are, are really grappling with how they integrate all of the um, all of the connections between all of the people that are affected by this current moment, um, and in terms of external capacity, I mean, I think that you know, for nonprofit leaders, I, I feel like they're they are so good. I mean, the nonprofit leaders that I work with, they get intuitively what it means to be really proximate to the needs, right? To really be there for the families on the ground, and then see themselves in systems to really understand the role that they play in the, bigger, in the bigger systems. And for me, it's really about the funder community getting good at that too. Um, and that feels to me like in this moment where you, know, you, know, you have me too first and then you have the organizational response, or you have never again first and then you have the organizational response. I think that funders really, really need to lean into that um, understanding that they, they can't just address issues at one level in the system, that they have to really get good at doing that, you know, 2,000 foot view and then at the ground level uh, instead of like sitting there, um, sitting way up high and not getting proximate to what's going on with both their grantees and the ultimate beneficiaries of their work. Um, so I'll, I'll stop there and, <laughs> and get your reaction to that. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in, in what you both just um, said there, but I think I, I want to emphasize another resource on that conversational topic that's very much echoing where you are is um, uh, Henry Timms was on the podcast a little while ago yeah. with, uh, talking about his book, again, co-authored, and I'm afraid I'm going to forget the co-author's name, but um, called New Power, where it really is talking about um, charities have a space where they're engaged in this work, but um, that external capacity isn't um, defined as creating another charity or another um, um, external organizational based thing, but rather understanding that together these more um, generative movements along the lines of Me Too, uh, Never Again, these things um, don't necessarily have formal institutional things behind them, but building the capacity of them to move forward, where charities are part of that moving forward, is a new normal way of thinking. It is not necessarily um, how we may have done it you know, prior to 2016. And I, I just think that that's a, a little bit of a challenge in the agility and speed question for some uh, charities, but I think a really important part of what you're both calling out in this report to think about how um, we don't necessarily need to internalize an external movement in order to be part of it, that we can let go a little bit of some of those pieces in order to 
maintain the external capacity that you're talking about, if I phrase that right. Yeah. Um, so the co-author of Jeremy Hyman's in that book is an amazing uh, book. Um, and if your listeners haven't read it, please do. I think it does a great idea for a great, great job of articulating exactly what we're talking about is, is moving from different elevations in order to get to the most impact. And I, and I just would push back on and maybe say, Steve, that it's, for me, it's really important that, um, that the nonprofits, uh, don't let their funders off the hook on this one. Like I really think that this is a moment to renegotiate your relationship with your funders and help them get proximate to the realities on the ground, um, and help them to deploy capital in a different way. Um, and you know, for me, the, the interesting thing too, and, and one of the great joys of writing this report is just to see the funders who are really experimenting and a lot of that experimenting is happening kind of you know it's like you know out of the normal funder process you know they call it the rapid response fund but it really is an opportunity to experiment in in partnership with uh with the field okay so kate in in response to what aideen was just saying there i think uh, there's um, there's a little f- institutional fear, I would think, with some uh, um, smaller nonprofits in particular who've never really felt they had that kind of relationship with the funding community to not let them off the hook, but rather a, a different thing. And maybe this is a moment where that relationship can shift. And I, I don't know if, uh, as you were doing interviews and talking with people, if you felt like they're they're finding that sense or if that's something that needs some encouragement. I'm going to say yes to both. You know, I think we've heard we've heard both, and and I think you know what's exciting about this moment for nonprofits is that to do the work that needs to happen in the next in the coming years, funders need to be close to the ground. They need to know what's happening on the ground. They need to know how communities are being impacted by changing policies and shifts in government funding. And the people channeling that are the nonprofits that are closest to them. Um, and so there is a real powerful moment right now. And, and funders are, are aware of that. You know, there's organizations like the Listen for Good Effort and others that are really thinking about how they listen to and adapt to what's happening on the ground and to communities on the ground. And so I think there is a real power in that for nonprofits to say, look, we know what's happening. We know what needs to be done um, and come with us on this journey as we, as we sort of figure it out and experiment, as Aideen's saying. And at the same time, yes, that power differential is huge and, and not to be um, dismissed. And I think um, nonprofits working together, ne- um, developing networks, helping each other, um, and even tying their work into larger nonprofits who may be able to, to make the case in a different way. I think those are all really important strategies because, because we can't, um, can't underestimate how difficult it is, especially for a small nonprofit who may even only just have a couple of staff folks to be thinking about developing those longer term relationships with funders. Well, we won't be able to get to everything in the report and certainly we'll have a link to um, your report download site so people can uh, take a look and really dive into all of it. But I do want to shift for a moment and talk a little bit about something else that you've got in there that I think is uh, an important moment in this new normal is a an urgency within the general public to be part of that change in some meaningful way. And lacking any more experience or other tools, they may not um, do a, a, a six-hour guide star search to figure out exactly where their best impact opportunity is, but they might go, I've heard of the ACLU, 
I'm worried. Here's some money to the ACLU. And, and that shift of um, individual philanthropic dollars to sort of larger, better known, oh my gosh, response organizations um, is part of what you talk about a little bit in this report as people are finding a need to uh, be part of this uh, new normal change in activism thing. But that presents some of its own challenges. And I'm not sure which of you may want to address that part first. So I'll, I'll throw it out. Um, so I feel like Steve, you should answer that question because you have a lot of expertise on this. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll give my, my answer and then, uh, and then I'll, then I can turn the tables back on you. I mean, I think again, now again, you know, for, um, a small nonprofit who has, you know, one development person or, you know, or maybe not even that, maybe the executive director is still writing those $10,000, $15,000 grants. Um, I, I feel like this is, uh, again, one of those moments to have with, with your funders and with the intermediaries in your space. Um, so, you know, the ACLU is like, I mean, first of all, everyone should write a check to the ACLU. They're an amazing organization. And they, you know, they talked about the demand that they're feeling uh, to step into a different role. And, you know, and again, my opinions aside, like it is actually a real question in terms of how they're going to build out their capacity about whether they're going to be essentially, you know, a pass through or an, or an advocate on behalf of small organizations in local communities. They essentially, they have the networks. And the question is, does that make the most sense for the work that they do. And I don't know the answer to that, but I think a lot of the beneficiaries of resistance funding um, from those small donations are being pushed into uh, answering that question about whether they are gonna be a gateway and a bridge to the local communities. Um, so I'll say that without you know, making any kind of uh, recommendation, because it is, it's a complicated question for an, for an organization that that's not what they're set up to do. Um, I will say, you know, the funders, this is actually a moment for um, them to invest in the capacity of key players, both intermediaries and also organizations that don't historically have a lot of relationship with institutional philanthropy. Because those organizations really do need the, the capacity to capitalize on this moment when they are so much on doing the frontline work and need to be building their capacity to do this for the long haul. Because the one thing that I am walking away from the new normal you know, moment is that we are not in a temporary state. We're in a, a uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, this is, this is going to be our normal. Right. And so it really um, is a smart investment idea for uh, an institutional funder instead of making a small program grant to give a capacity grant so that that nonprofit can really build out its internal capacity to keep activists close. So and I'll let Kate add anything if she has anything further there. No, I think I would just echo what you said, Aideen. I absolutely believe that, you know, that it is the role of funders and foundations in this moment to be thinking about those organizations that are closest to communities and who are essential to getting the work done, who are the ones who have those relationships and who can channel their needs. And to really say, what do you need in terms of capabilities, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of leadership, in order to really start reaching other donors or other groups to support your work for the longer term? And I'm, and I'm, Steve, I'm very interested to hear how you'll answer your own question, given that you do so much of this work. <laughs> I, 
I do work with those more medium-sized organizations, smaller ones that um, mm-hmm. maybe it's not the first response that uh, uh, a person that, that sees the crisis happening around them and feels like I, I maybe haven't been as involved as I'd like to, not because I don't believe in a, a, a good, healthy society, but, you know, this type of crisis response prompts urgency. And sometimes that urgency isn't necessarily to connect with organizations I don't know yet, but rather to just act quickly to something that I do feel comfortable with. So mm-hmm. um, certainly the ACLU, uh, again, they've been doing some amazing work specifically in the area of uh, immigration and uh, new American um, defense. And, and this is a huge area of concern in the new normal. This is an amazing thing, but it isn't to say that, um, the reproductive rights centers that are locally based don't still need some help, that there aren't, um, as you point out in the report, LGBTQ organizations locally based that need resources and support. Um, so I think the challenge for the charity to uh, um, rise into a visible space in their own community with that network model, that in that external capacity network of we are a part of a bigger movement. We may, may not be an ACLU-sized organization, but we are part of a network that moves this whole issue forward. So here's how you can support this more locally and um, get to know something. And of course, those organizations have better ability to take advantage of non-cash contribution, people that will give time or uh, whatever else they can give that might not feel like they're you know, the $100,000 donor that can make this huge difference, but somebody that can make a difference by um, helping to bring in more people to the cause. Yeah. Signing and, people, and funders need to fund that, that volunteer position, right. <laughs> the volunteer coordinator position. Yeah. I, I think that that is a, a, a part of where the opportunity in the new normal absolutely comes in for some of these folks is to make a better connection. I, I tell a lot of folks that if you look at the Giving USA reports, you'll see that generally speaking, roughly 80% of philanthropy in this country is from individuals. Yeah. More and more and more of it, um, as will people that read the Giving Code will see, is coming in from individuals that are doing their giving from very high levels. They've gotten a tremendous amount of resource and they're doing their own giving personally, rather than necessarily creating a foundation or giving to a foundation. So again, go back to the giving code, take a peek, learn about that. But even take those outliers aside, the amount of money that's available from individuals is generally speaking higher than it is from institutions. So we got to get them to our new normal table in thinking about network growth too. Um, One of the challenges in that that I also wanted to make sure we chatted about, and boy, we're already burning through a fair amount of our time because this is such an interesting and in-depth topic. But I do want to shift us a little bit to talk about leadership, uh, both within the charitable sector and then philanthropic and community-based leadership, too, where you you talk about a a leadership gap and what that looks like here. Also, a potential for leadership burnout um, as we try to just do more quickly uh, than perhaps has even been done before. And I think charities were famous for doing more and quickly before 2016. So uh, increasing that pace and changing what leadership looks like and how it reacts in this space um, could be a real problem area, I think, within charities. And I, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're looking at it in the report, but I'd love to hear you talk just a little bit about your impressions on that particular part of the new normal. Um, okay, I'll jump in. Kate, Kate will jump in later. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what, what we called out is, you know, and again, this kind of articulates um, and illustrates a little bit about what, what, how this change has already been happening. So the financial crisis in, in, 2008, in 2008 um, delayed the retirement of a lot of boomer leaders. 
Um, and then you had the 2016 election and, you know, again, um, what we heard anecdotally, um, and we have some data to support it is that, you know, the, the kind of like, it's, it's, it's coming at it from both sides, which is like the simultaneous kind of burnout of, you know, leaders who have been along, who have been there for such a long time, coupled by, uh, younger leaders who just don't have the experience around what it takes to actually do this work for the long haul. And so uh, what that ends up looking like in this moment is a lot of staffs in crisis, in crisis because they actually are, you know, uh, victims of a lot of the issues that are being targeted, but they also are tired because the work is nonstop and never ending. Um, and then there's a lot of intergenerational stuff that plays itself out. Um, and what do we do about that? Um, I think what we heard from a lot of the executive directors that we talked to is that they are taking this idea of wellness or self-care extremely seriously. Like it is for us, we feel like that, that is a new capacity need, uh, in most organizations. Uh, no matter how senior or junior you are in those organizations, that actually having a place for reflection, having time away from the office, sabbatical programs, leadership development opportunities, that stuff is no longer a nice to have, it's a need to have. Um, and I'm interested to hear Kate's, Kate's take on it because Kate's done uh, some work on this as well. So yeah, I would, I think I would echo everything you said and, and maybe <laughs> add that in addition, you know, this, succession planning has also been a nice to have, right? Yeah. The deep bench has been a nice to have, you know, and, and especially for organizations, like we're talking about the small to medium sized ones, every role is a critical role. And yet um, developing that leadership, those folks who can step into, um, into the work more deeply or, or take on leadership for a while for an executive director who needs to take a, a sort of a timeout or a sabbatical, that's incredibly difficult. Um, and especially when you're moving from crisis to crisis in an already under-resourced organization um, and being called to do almost the impossible, right? To be, you know, proximate and systemic, to be being adaptive in your strategy, to be doing all of these things, um, it of course leads to burnout. It of course leads to exhaustion. And, and I think we've really got to, as a sector, think deeply about how are we building the sustainable infrastructure for the long term. Um, and that includes people. And the ability of those people to adapt to newer things that may have been outside their wheelhouse, I think, is another part of what you're getting to here. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you to jump in on a little bit is perhaps a skills gap with some of those folks that did hang around longer, um, that were um, originally planning, maybe they would have retired before now. Um, you know, so much of what has happened in, in the hashtag movement world is about social connectivity and, and movements that are at least stereotypically um, stronger in, in different generations than maybe the one that is currently holding the reins at some institutions. Um, as a, a proud user of social media that is also gray haired, I know we have exceptions to that, but um, if, if part of the concern is the skill set that, that brought some of these charities and these philanthropic efforts up to the, to the point that they are may not necessarily be the ones that can ride all the waves of what's happening simultaneously, is there thoughts of how do we 
make sure that skills are present regardless of leadership titles or, or building that into leaders or transitioning some leadership responsibilities out of the, the lead staff person and into somebody that maybe manages that. I mean, there could be a few ways to handle that, but I, I don't know how that particular so, skills question throws in. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, we don't actually have a lot of uh, data on, mm-hmm. you know, what are, the, what are the skill sets that are lacking um, or what, you know, what's the next hill to climb. So, um, so I'll just take this moment to give you my, uh, my um, experience with leaders of all ages. Um, what they have in common is just a desire to connect. Hmm. And I tend to, in my work with leaders, really downplay how important the tool is um, and just get to that place of connection. And so if you're a senior leader and you're not on Twitter, um, I think that the real question is not, you know, um, how do I build my social media platform? But it's really about how is my organization connecting to a more diverse constituency and who in the organization can help us do that and how can I support that, that person in doing it? Um, and, you know, where, where can I experiment and not feel threatened? So I think that that's also a part of it. And so I think that, that it really is, if, if you are that senior leader or if you're that entry-level staff person who, you know, is like constantly rolling their eyes at having <laughs> to, you know, log your executive director on to Twitter for the 10th time, you know, that, that's not the conversation. That's a tool conversation. The real conversation is, is what do we need? How can we be a better whole? And also, how can, you know, what is, what is it that's going to really drive greater connectivity in the world that we care about? Kate, do you have thoughts on that connectivity question? I mean, I would just add that, you know, of course, the, the sort of digital native generation is going to shift the way that we approach and use technology. Um, we, we don't have any data on that. But that's that's inevitable. Um, I think Aideen's point about sort of how do we think about those tools um, in a way that will advance and amplify our work and how as funders do we resource um, organizations with the time and the financial resources to make sure that they're adapting as well. Um, and incorporating those rather than just having those be sort of distracting add-ons or, or things that funders say, oh, well, shouldn't you all be on WhatsApp if, if you're doing <laughs> this work? Um, but really sort of coming at it from a point of view of saying, where, what is going to advance and amplify our work and how do we then use the tools necessary? And I, and I want to give you a great example. So um, the Levi Strauss Foundation, um, in their first generation of the, um, they have a leadership program. What the first generation of that program thought that they were going to build a social media empire for each of these organizations. And uh, what they realized is that, no, 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 it's really about building their networks, both online and off. Um, and that it really became about the connection between them and the connection with them, with their constituency. So, yeah. And these are all, you know, millennial leaders. Yeah. Well, great learning. So much more. We've got time for like one more question that I want to make sure we um, uh, can help people connect to this conversation themselves and be, may keep networked in this as this evolves. But I do want to talk a little bit about um, the ideas of, of accountability uh, on both sides of this equation as things speed up. I think one of the reasons why maybe we've seen grant funding cycles and other things feel pretty slow in the past is there's been this desire to make sure that we're investing in the best possible way 
and that we're, we're evaluating all the options. Um, and as speed moves in as a little bit more important, there's that question mark of who are we funding? How are we funding them? And what are we sharing amongst ourselves in that accountability part? So that it's not just, I report back to this funder because they have a grant with me, but I don't tell everybody else the same thing. Um, this new normal opportunity to um, shift that conversation on accountability on all sides, I think is a really interesting part of what you're, you're getting at here. And then um, I, I think it's important to maybe bring us to a close with how do we share those learnings? How do we be more open about this on all sides of this new normal? Um, and Kate, maybe I could ask you to start yeah. us off with that and, and we'll wrap around. Yeah, I think one fundamental shift is to stop thinking about data and, and uh, learning and accountability and metrics as a past-focused problem, mm. right? It's a future-focused problem. Um, and especially given so much uncertainty in our policy landscape, so much uncertainty in our funding landscape, how are nonprofits articulating to their individual donors, to their institutional funders, hey, we're on a learning journey. We're going to be shifting and adapting as we're getting this information, and it's going to continue to evolve our practice and, and amplify our impact. Um, and I think really sort of saying it's not about how we're going to stop and take stock and did we get an A or did we get an F on impact, <laughs> right? But really to say, how does, how does our organization become a learning organization? And how do you as a funder and a donor come along that journey with us? Aideen? Yeah, I mean, I want to like lead the like, um, redo the, the grant, uh, grant agreement revolution. Cause I just, I feel like this is just such a moment for funders and, um, and uh, nonprofits to co-create the right dashboard, right? This is about the, how change happens more than what happened. Because if you wait for what happened, then that means that you're a funder sitting on the sidelines or you're a nonprofit that's pretty paralyzed. And I just feel like that is such a, that's such an unfortunate place to be in, even though, you know, as somebody who comes out of philanthropy and, you know, has 20 years of dealing with boards, like, I get it. I get it. You want to be a good steward of resources. And I, I, my great wish is that um, getting funders more proximate to the realities on the ground and having nonprofits have, uh, you know, real conversations with their funders and having nonprofits really start to co-create things like getting points for connection. Like, um, you know, if nonprofits are talking more together about how to coordinate around a key issue facing facing their community that should be a form of accountability um, so just you know that's a brief example but my my real hope is that we can have a dashboard um, like conversation uh, with people who are really focused on collaborating on solving big problems well, so much more to say, and unfortunately, no time to say all the rest of it. So the next step, I guess, is to tell people where they can first uh, get the report. Let's uh, begin with that part. Um, would either of you kind of give people the easiest way to download the report? Yeah, the easiest way is probably on our Open Impact website, which is www.openimpact.io. Um, and there you can go to our insights page and download the new normal as well as the giving code and the giving journey reports. Good. So first step, 
go read, and there's wonderful citations throughout uh, the, in the appendices of the report. So if, um, if the report itself kind of asks some more questions in your head, there's, there's places to go. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to ask both of you to do is uh, help, you know, that, that network growing idea that you were just kind of talking about. How do people continue to stay engaged in this conversation in the best ways that, that they can? Uh, do you have any uh, recommendations or advice for people that once they've kind of dug in and they have some ideas and questions in their own spheres and communities, how do they, they keep this part of what is new normal moving forward? Um, I think there's a lot of different ways that they can do that. Conferences you can attend, um, webinars you can listen in on. But one tool that I, I will um, call out here is um, Wu Li has a, a newsletter that he publishes, and he's also collaborated on a tool that is a way for nonprofits to provide feedback to foundations. Um, it's a, a, a sort of a rating system in a way for foundations around how they are engaging with and building the capacity of their grantee partners. Um, and if you haven't gone on there, and if you haven't sort of given feedback on the funders that are in your uh, revenue stream, then that's a really great first step and a way of sort of clarifying and explaining to your funders your needs and, and sort of how they can better support you. Right. So that's grantadvisor.org that you're speaking of, as I yeah. recall. That's a great place. And I, yeah. and I would even go, um, just to, to even shrink that even further, I mean, if nonprofit leaders are not having those unstructured moments with um, their, their collaborators, maybe their competitors and their funders, um, I would also really encourage that. Take this report. There are a number of other resources that you could bring to that table and have a conversation, have one that is highly, highly relevant to the issues that you're trying to tackle and bring together the system or parts of the system that, that are a part of your day-to-day. That is a fantastic piece of advice to close on. So I'm going to just say uh, Aideen Sachs is the Senior Advisor to Open Impact and Program Director of the Irvine New Leadership Network. Kate Wilkinson, a Strategy and Philanthropy Engagement Manager at Open Impact. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 